Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hi, I'm Peter Tofano, and welcome to the last episode in this current series of Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Side Business School at the University of Oxford. In the series, we've covered a lot of ground, from the impact of COVID-19 on the entertainment industry and the real estate sector, to advertising, African governance, and scenario planning. You can find all of our past episodes from this series and from Series 1 wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up in this episode, we'll be asking, what impact has the global pandemic had on mergers and acquisitions? Episode 10, The Reshaping of the Mergers and Acquisitions Market Despite market activity dropping by nearly 40% against 2019 Q1 figures, the M&A market has continued to adapt and trade. How's that been achieved? And what are the possible changes that can become the norm for M&A after COVID-19? We've brought together two leading thinkers from Side Business School to explore this topic and more. Professor Colin Mayer, CBE, is the Peter Moores Professor of Management Studies, as well as the former dean, my predecessor here at Oxford Said. And Dr. Tim Galpin is Senior Lecturer in Strategy and Innovation, and he's the author of Winning at the Acquisition Game. They're going to offer two different perspectives on analyzing the M&A market, what we might call a conventional or strategic view, and also a more nuanced purpose view. First, Tim Galpin begins with a more conventional overview of the broad M&A landscape and a question. Why should we be interested in M&A during a global pandemic? Aren't there bigger things to be thinking about? Yeah, it's a good question because, you know, the global solving the global health crisis is paramount, obviously, for everyone around the world. Uh, And mergers and acquisitions, uh, you know, is a secondary topic to that primary topic. But that being said, uh, everyone that's viewing will be impacted by M&A at some point in their career, uh, either as a uh, employee for a buyer, uh, an employee for a company that gets sold. Um, they may work in the M&A industry as a banker, an attorney, a consultant, uh, or even as a customer. Companies get bought and sold all the time. That changes sometimes our loyalty to companies, that sort of thing. So uh, M&A is going to impact all of us. That's one factor and one reason why we should all be interested. Uh, Secondly, uh, a lot of people working in the industry uh, are in a lull at the moment because M&A is in a lull and we'll get into the data in a a few minutes. But, uh, you know, people are wondering about their jobs. You know, are they, uh, is M&A going to come back? Are they going to be doing M&A anytime soon uh, with, kind of a trickle of what's going on right now. Uh, and then finally, m and is a, a real indicator of economic activity. Uh, so when the economy's picking up, m and picks up, or when m and picks up, the economy picks up, can go both ways. So as we come out of the uh, pandemic and the economies around the world start opening up, m and will pick up. So uh, we need to be aware of what's happening in the market as it starts to pick back up. You know, COVID has definitely caused a near-term downturn in deal-making. So deal-making has dropped off significantly uh, from last year and really the last 10 years. $485 billion worth of deals 
have been done since the beginning of April 2020. It's down more than 50%. There's a lot of zombie deals that are caught between uh, signing and closing. So when a deal is signed and when a deal is closed, there's a gap in between. And right now, some of those deals uh, that would have closed without the pandemic are in limbo. Uh, and the buyers uh, may be looking to walk away from that uh, to a deal that was done prior to the pandemic. And then the target company's valuation uh, may have dropped significantly. Obviously, the economic future uh, for that acquisition is very uncertain. Uh, so people are trying to invoke the what's called the MAC clause or material adverse change, uh, which is in all uh, sales and purchase agreements. And uh, we'll see how that ends up for a lot of these deals. It'll essentially end up in litigation for most of them because uh, there's a lot of contentious uh, viewpoints about whether the MAC clause uh, will kick in for these zombie deals that are out there uh, waiting to close where the buyer is trying to back out. Um, volatility in financial markets, uh, elevated economic uncertainty is complicating valuation. So valuation, as anybody who's worked on trying to project what a company is worth, not just today, but in the future, uh, is based on having some semblance of uh, view to the economic future uh, in that industry and globally. And right now that's a big open question. So valuation is complicated. Uh, more an accelerated industry consolidation. You're seeing uh, industries that are struggling. There will be struggling companies that will be bought or have to merge to survive. Uh, we'll see that in probably the airline industry. We'll see that in retail, hospitality, uh, restaurants. We're already seeing a lot of receiverships uh, bankruptcies being declared. So uh, the industry consolidation. And then the banks, attorneys, and consultants uh, are repurposing their transaction staff to temporarily work in restructuring units. So uh, if there's not a transaction to work on, uh, people are being repurposed to help their clients do restructuring. Uh, bigger firms can pick up the slack with some of their other service lines. Smaller boutiques are now repurposing their kind of value proposition to their clients uh, to help them restructure, restructure debt, restructure operations, really to weather the storm until deal-making picks back up. And then as a pandemic subsides, there'll be a pent-up demand. Uh, animal spirits will kick back in again as the economies open up, and there'll be another M&A wave. We're just at the end of about a 10-year wave that started after the last downturn of 0809. Uh, and this has ended that uh, basic, uh, basically the longest M&A run in history uh, as far as a wave of M&A. And that will pick back up as the economies open up. So a bit more specifically, uh, M&A for acquirers. On the, on the buyer side, availability of assets, distressed companies created, it's a buyer's market. Assets are a bit cheaper. Uh, Stock market has rebounded, but uh, there are struggling companies and the valuations have dropped. So uh, it is a buyer's market, uh, cheap assets available. Fewer cross-border deals. There's a lot of protectionism going on. There was even before the pandemic. And now with the pandemic, uh, the EU, uh, the UK, others have said, uh, don't come searching for bargain uh, companies in our locations. Uh, so they're trying to protect their uh, industries from being taken over because they're uh, in a difficult situation at the moment. So 
a lot fewer cross-border deals will be occurring, at least in the near, near term. Uh, difficult for buyers to conduct due diligence, obviously without being able to visit. That's opening up a bit more. There's been a lot of creativity about due diligence with GoPro visits uh, over video, drone visits, flyovers uh, to view assets, plants, uh, equipment, that sort of thing. Uh, for firms that still have access to debt and financing, they uh, have exceptionally low uh, interest rates. So money is cheap. And when money's cheap, deals get done. So uh, there is uh, cheap money to fund deals if companies have access to that uh, debt capital. And then because of low asset prices, acquirers will fall in love with deals just because they're cheap uh, and they'll ignore the organizational fit. So a deal might be cheap, but it may not end up being cheerful uh, to throw out a British phrase. And uh, companies may not get along because they ignore that organizational or cultural fit uh, between the companies. Just because a company is cheap, it may not be a great fit uh, for your organization. When you buy during downturns, you have a much better chance of succeeding with your deals. There's a lot of data uh, that's come out over the years that uh, deals destroy value often for buyers, or at least they struggle to gain the value. But if you buy during a downturn, you have about a 10% uh, higher return on your uh, acquisition than when you buy in a strong economy. And then from the seller's perspective, they're desperate to generate cash. Cash is king right now. People need it to weather the storm. Uh, those that are cash poor, putting more core and non-core assets up for sale to generate cash. Innovative companies uh, that have successfully addressed COVID uh, or in an industry that is addressing COVID, whether it's in biotech, healthcare, um, they're being highly valued by acquirers. So they're being sought after, but their valuations are going up. Uh, so they will be expensive, but they are attractive from their future potential from addressing the COVID crisis. If they do not already have them in place, distressed companies are putting in poison pills. Again, it's not just regulatory barriers that are going up to uh, try to prevent entities from coming in and buying assets cheap, distressed assets, but the assets themselves are putting up their own barriers. Uh, the management of the companies are putting in their poison pills to try to prevent those takeovers. And then again, because they're so desperate to sell on the sell side, sellers will ignore organizational fit. Again, uh, you may be uh, having a suitor come along, uh, they're ready to buy and you need to sell, um, but you may not be the best fit for that acquirer and that organizational fit. Again, the culture clashes that can occur post deal can really come back to bite the company. So that's kind of the general M&A landscape, seller's perspective, buyer's perspective, and there's a lot going on right now, a lot of uncertainty, but it will pick back up again. Can you elaborate on poison pills that sellers can implement? Yeah, you know, I can't do a full uh, poison pill discussion like we do in our M&A class, um, but essentially they're uh, mechanisms that a company's board will put in place and management team uh, to try to prevent a takeover, to make it more expensive. Actually, when a buyer comes along, it may trigger what's called a change of control. So when a, a company gets bought, uh, especially in a hostile takeover where they don't want to be sold uh, or bought and they are purchased anyway, the shareholders vote in favor of the acquisition. Um, they're 
the poison pill will prevent that uh, or try to prevent it by making the acquisition more expensive uh, when that poison pill comes in by diluting the shares of the buyer, as an example, uh, allowing the seller's shareholders to buy more shares, again, diluting the shares of the, of the buyer, uh, having large management payouts, compensation payouts, significantly large to make it um, very expensive. So there are prevention mechanisms to try to prevent hostile takeovers. Tim Galpin, Senior Lecturer in Strategy and Innovation here at Site Business School, then took questions from the audience tuning in live. First, we've just ended the longest takeover boom in history. What drove that long-run boom? And are those factors going to continue, making this current slowdown just a blip before we get back to the boom scenario? Well, m and waves are created for several reasons. So one uh, is cheap financing. I mentioned that. And financing's gotten even cheaper. So that isn't a reason that the M&A run uh, wave that we just came out of has stalled, but it will be a reason that another one begins. Another reason for an M&A wave uh, is M&A is a herd mentality. So as industries start consolidating uh, and uh, we see that, uh, especially coming out of distressed periods, economic periods, like we did in 08, 09, uh, various industries started consolidating for survival, for strength. And uh, we will see that again, uh, again, coming out of this pandemic. And M&A waves are created also when economies start picking up, M&A picks up. So that's the main reason that M&A wave ended was the economies shut down, as we know, around the world. And essentially, as the economy shut down, M&A shut down. So it wasn't that cheap debt didn't exist. Cheap debt exists. Uh, so that was not the reason. Industry consolidation was still going on. It will go on again. Um, but really, with the economies shutting down and that lull of the economy, it really uh, just cut off that 10-year M&A wave that we just came out of. Which industries do you then think are going to be the ones uh, that are going to be most actively looking to buy going forward? From an industry perspective, uh, it's really more the stronger companies. So I would, I would kind of shift the question and say um, the companies with uh, stronger balance sheets with more uh, cash available, there will be a lot more cash deals done. Although stock has gone up uh, for a lot of companies, especially in the tech industry. So as we've seen recently, uh, so they'll use stock as a currency. So tech will be an industry that uh, will do a lot of acquisitions especially the stronger companies in tech with uh, higher stock valuations, and they can use that as a currency. Uh, and we will see other industries that will consolidate, as I mentioned a little while ago, some that are struggling. And the stronger companies in those industries will be the buyers uh, in retail, uh, hospitality, restaurants, travel. Um, and we're seeing private equity looking at those industries because they can buy cheap assets and cheap companies right now. Even private equity will use more of their cash. Obviously, their acquisition model is typically a leverage model where they borrow the money to buy the, uh, the assets, but they will use a lot more cash uh, during this period as well, shifting their uh, acquisition model a bit. And, and, and which do you think are going to be the main target industries? Which, which Yeah, so on the sell side, uh, it's the weaker companies. You know, you're looking at, again, back to those struggling industries, restaurants, hospitality, travel, um, retail. 
Uh, we're already seeing a lot of those companies declaring bankruptcy, going into receivership, and uh, they'll be bought. So the struggling companies will be bought. Uh, there uh, will be people that feel like they can, uh, coming out of this economic downturn, buy low and uh, sell them high, as the P model is. So uh, they will swoop in and grab companies on the cheap. Uh, restructure those companies, again, restructure the debt, restructure their operations, strip out costs, get rid of non-core assets. Uh, so they'll actually buy and sell a, a bit as well. So we're really looking at those distressed companies within those distressed industries that I just mentioned. Right. With the impending US dollar shortage in emerging markets in China, how will this impact on M&A? That's actually a really good question and a really good point that uh, you will see a lot of targets being acquired in geographies that are struggling. Uh, I mentioned industry, particular companies, um, but geographically in the countries that are struggling for capital, you know, when the economies are down, the shortage of funding, their assets will be cheaper. And so they'll be takeover targets. Um, and then there are a lot of countries uh, that are going to have outbound buying. Uh, so you're looking at some of the cash-rich companies, a lot in the Middle East, China, uh, are looking at uh, doing acquisitions. So it works both ways. Um, when they have the capital available, they will make the acquisitions. When they don't, <laughs> they will be the takeover target. Okay. And one final question. How long do you think it's going to take before the market recovers? <laughs> That's the uh, you know multi-billion dollar question, uh, how long it will take. Um, you know, we need to get the global health crisis sorted out. Uh, you know, obviously everyone's working on their vaccine. Oxford's leading the way in that. You know, all projections right now is really, at least until uh, middle of next year, that the economies will be down and M&A will be down, uh, that it should start picking up next year. It will start picking up as people can do more site visits uh, for their due diligence. They can hold more face-to-face -face meetings now, uh, even with the physical distancing or social distancing, uh, you know, people wearing masks, um, but they can still meet physically uh, rather than have to do it over video. Um, we have spoken to some buyers, you and I, uh, I've spoken to some of our guest speakers in our mergers and acquisitions course that are still doing deals um, and they're having to, you know, make those acquisitions uh, with a little bit more leap of faith than they did by doing them over video. And so people are taking that uh, approach as well. So best guess a year from now, we'll see it pick up, but that's watch this space yet to be seen. Tim Galpin has outlined for us the conventional perspective on M&A and the influence of COVID-19. Now Colin Mayer is going to give us a different angle one that's a newly emerging view of the firm in relation to the purpose of a company, which goes beyond financial performance to look at its very reason for existing. Colin's going to suggest that if we apply that lens to mergers and acquisitions, that we potentially get a very different perspective on the M&A market, and it has some profound implications for analyzing M&A and what gives rise to its success or failure. The sort of conventional view is best put in terms of what a term strategic acquisitions, in which an acquirer seeks a target as a way of promoting its strategic objectives. There are obviously alternatives to which uh, Tim alluded in his uh, presentations, which are 
uh, financially driven acquisitions that we in particular associate with PE firms. Uh, and PE firms are thought to bring advantages in terms of potentially stronger forms of governance than listed uh, companies can achieve and then, then can thereby realize financial gains by acquiring firms and restructuring them. Uh, M&A activity did fall off the cliff in uh, the last quarter and uh, it did so both in relation to the volume of acquisitions and the deal values, which pushed both of them back to levels that we uh, uh, only saw during the uh, worst period of the financial crisis or the aftermath of the financial crisis. One of the main drivers of acquisitions uh, and the factor that's most closely associated with the takeover waves that uh, Tim was alluding to uh, is the stock market prices. And this shows the relationship between uh, aggregate M&A activity and an aggregate index, the MSCI World Index of Share Price. And you can see how closely related the two are. Now, that points to the uh, notion that quite a lot of acquisitions may be driven by uh, financial considerations, potentially in terms of mispricing that goes on in stock markets, uh, mispricing in terms of the uh, share price of both acquiring and target firms. And although there's been this falling off in terms of uh, total value and volume of acquisitions, that uh, in relation to the finance private equity driven deals, we're seeing uh, an uptick in terms of the proportion uh, of deals that are driven by private equity, as indeed was the case around the uh, financial crisis. And that, that again points to the notion that deals may at least in part be driven by uh, financial mispricings, not only going on in uh, the stock market, but also going on in debt markets, and in particular, the possibility of there being underpricing of debt that private equity uses uh, to launch uh, acquisitions. Now, in essence, private equity is a money-making machine uh, that's driven by the interests of their investors, uh, many of which are institutional investors, which have uh, a particular uh, focus on and requirement to promote the uh, interests of their uh, investors, uh, who in many cases are predominantly focused on financial returns. So private equity is essentially driven by the returns that it can generate from taking over companies, restructuring them and selling them off again. But there's also been a significant shift in terms of the focus of what the institutional investors are looking at with a growing emphasis in terms of factors such as ESG, environmental, social, and governance considerations alongside just pure financial returns. And this shows the uh, substantial 
growth that's taken place in terms of sustainable funds uh, that have been invested by institutional investors. Now, there are a number of reasons why this is happening, but one of the main factors is a growing concern about some of the risks to which institutional investors are exposed through the investments that they're making in the corporate sector that are of essentially what one might term a systemic type. That is to say that they're exposed to environmental risks, to social risks, to regulatory risks, to political type risks, and that those risks then uh, in turn raise the, essentially raise the cost of capital uh, for institutions investing in firms. So there's been a growing interest in the extent to which institutional investors and companies should be trying to mitigate those systemic risks that they're imposing on their uh, investors through engaging in more sustainable, responsible type investment activities. And there is evidence to suggest that companies that placed a lot of emphasis on ESG during the downturn in share prices around the uh, coronavirus pandemic, starting from the middle of February till the middle of March, outperformed companies that had lower uh, ESG ratings. That was also true during the subsequent upturn. So that it looks as if high ESG companies outperformed both during the downturn and the upturn, the significant upturn that subsequently occurred uh, in aggregate share prices in terms of their share price returns. So if we begin to see a shift in focus of institutional investors, perhaps because what they want to de-risk themselves uh, in this way, towards more sustainable ESG-focused, responsible-type businesses, then that may well be reflected both in terms of the way in which the private equity firms make uh, M&A decisions and also in terms of the way in which strategic buyers act, because obviously the strategic buyers, in turn of uh, institutional investors, are holding their equity and will be driven by similar considerations. But there's a third element uh, that's entered into uh, the uh, acquisition market over the last couple of decades. And that takes a, a somewhat different form, and that is from hedge fund activists. Now, hedge fund activists don't, in general, acquire all of the shares in a the company. They might acquire, acquire a block of shares in companies, but nevertheless, they are acquiring essentially a significant controlling uh, shareholding in a company, and they then restructure on the back of that. And there's basically been a significant growth, certainly up to the financial crisis that then went down, but then has grown uh, back up since then in, in terms of hedge fund campaigns. And that's being continued up until now, a steady growth in the number of hedge fund activist campaigns that we've observed over the last five years or so. Now, the importance of that is, in terms of the objective uh, function of those hedge fund activists. Now, 
private equity firms might be investing for periods of five, seven years, or sometimes more than that. Hedge fund activists are typically investing for periods of two, three, four years or so, basically turning around companies as quickly as they can and getting out as fast as they can, basically uh, on the back of trying to achieve as high a uh, return on their investments uh, as possible. Now, one of the consequences of that has been in terms of the types of firms that they've been targeting. And one group that uh, some evidence that uh, uh, a study that uh, Rudy Durand at Ashesay and a number of his colleagues has been undertaking looks at the probability of being targeted if you're a high corporate uh, social responsibility company focusing on these factors that go beyond just pure financial returns and finding that there is a significant positive relationship between being targeted uh, for a bid and your corporate social responsibility score. And the argument behind that might be that those are regarded as essentially wasteful expenditures that companies are making and that they got, if they got focused better on uh, financial performance, then there's a potential for turning them around and yielding higher returns for shareholders. So they become potential targets for acquisitions. And the consequence of that is that that has a negative impact on the way in which those companies uh, then engage in corporate social responsibility programs. That's to say that they jettison them and they become, if anything, relatively low uh, activity companies in the field of corporate social responsibility. Now, what this then brings out is that the distinction between strategic and financial buyers is potentially an important one, but really overarching all of this is the significance of the purpose that lies behind acquisitions. Uh, and that if one thinks in terms of purpose, not just in terms of strategy, uh, then what one's doing is one's really looking at a much longer term perspective on acquisitions, because what a purpose is, is the fundamental reason why a company exists. And that if one's looking at it, not just in terms of a relatively short-term three, five-year strategy, but in terms of the fundamental reason why the acquirer exists and why the target firm exists, then thinking about it in those terms, then acquisitions take on a very different flavor. And in essence, what then is driving acquisitions is the notion of uh, the natural owner, whether or not a particular acquirer is a natural owner of the target firm. And if one looks at it in terms of trying to find a natural owner, then the objectives should reflect interests that, first of all, are much longer term than one is looking at in relation to uh, just uh, a strategic implementation. But also, it means that one's looking at factors beyond just financial performance. 
Because as I was just emphasizing, if you are taking that longer term perspective, then these other risk factors of the political, the social, the regulatory, the environmental, they become much more relevant to both the uh, acquiring company and the target firm. And that means that in terms of the way in which one's trying to identify potential acquisitions and the way in which a target should be looking for a suitable uh, natural owner is in terms of a, of a fit that allows the target and the acquirer to better achieve their purpose over that long-term profile and in terms of all of the factors that drive the financial performance. So it's not just thinking about, well, what gives rise to the highest share price return in the short term, it's saying, what are the factors that give rise to the best acquisitions that cause the performance of the firm to really move forward over a long-term period and to drive long-term returns uh, for the uh, investors in the firm. So in that regard then, the shift of attitude of institutional investors is critically important because it is a driver of the way in which PE and strategic buyers both operate. And the intervention by the hedge fund activists in placing greater focus on relatively short-term financial returns is essentially impeding a move towards a more purposeful, long-run, broader set of objectives of companies. And in that regard, it's interesting to see that there have been some initiatives recently in terms of thinking about, well, whether or not one can expect a new type of hedge fund activist to come into the market that is more focused on the purpose of business, more focused on that long run value creation and the factors that really drive that long run value creation beyond just uh, short term financial performance. So, for example, there was the announcement by Jeff Byrne and Lynn Forrester de Rothschild that they were forming a new hedge fund activist called Inclusive Capital Partners that's going to be focused on exactly that type of hedge fund intervention, trying to spot companies that are ripe for not just the short turnaround in terms of financial performance, but really driving purposeful companies, encouraging companies to be more purposeful going forward. And if that begins to take off, and for the reasons that I've just suggested, a lot of the institutional investors might be very interested investing in that type of hedge fund because it aligns with the factors that, for example, an index fund is interested in, namely those systemic risk exposures, and helps them to ensure that those get embedded uh, in the companies in which they're investing. Now it's time for Colin Mayer to take questions from our audience online. First, what is the role of M&A in sustainable investing and building back better? Absolutely central, because by building back better, what people basically mean is that companies should be purpose-driven. That is to say that they need to promote financial performance, but through a purpose that uh, seeks to do it in a way that benefits us as individuals, societies, and the natural world. And that that focus 
on what I term as being profitable solutions uh, to problems that we face as individual societies in the natural world are ways of driving better financial performance, certainly over the long run. Now to do that, you have to make the right investments. You have to invest in those things that are critical towards being able to uh, solve those problems. And you often have to bring in expertise that your company currently doesn't have. And so being able to uh, partner up with others is one way in which you can do that. Uh, and essentially creating an ecosystem of companies that together can help to solve that problem. But so too is the process of acquiring other companies. So thinking about acquisitions in this context uh, of essentially uh, creating uh, a mechanism by which one can uh, produce more purposeful companies involves acquisitions in doing exactly what I'm talking about, thinking about what's the natural owner, what's the natural partner for that long-term purpose objective of the acquiring firm and also of the target firm that is looking to have uh, a, a buyer that can help it scale up and really achieve that objective on a much bigger scale than it can do on its own. So both from the point of view of the acquirer and the target firm, it's critical. Okay, and a question about valuation and uh, how much are we building climate change and related risks into valuations and is it affecting pricing? Very much so. So it's just started. So this has been happening over the last year or two that uh, there's been increasing focus by institutional investors on environmental risk. Uh, and it's begun to be reflected in risk factors uh, that are used by institutional investors. So uh, that is something that's been brought about as a consequence of a growing pressure that's been brought to bear on the institutional investment community. And it's indicative of a general trend that we're going to see in this area. Whereas I'm mentioning institutions are becoming increasingly focused on this notion of the systemic risks, such as environment that are impacting on them, that should be regarded as risk classes and therefore should be reflected in the way in which they're pricing equity. And they are then looking to the corporate sector to respond to that in terms of the way in which they are making investment decisions, including in M&A. This one relates to upcoming mergers and acquisitions because of COVID and especially struggling industries like the hospitality sector. Will the strategic view or the purpose view prevail in their upcoming M&A transaction? A, a wonderful question. And, and, and let me just say, while why purpose is such an important element in terms of coming out of the crisis, what we're recognizing from the crisis is that our attitudes and our preferences as customers, as employees, as societies are changing a lot. The ways in which we're working, the way in which we're communicating in the form that we're doing now uh, is changing what we're going to be looking for going forward. We may not be spending so much time getting on planes. We may be spending more time uh, communicating, doing business with each other through 
these types of media. Now that poses serious threats to businesses insofar as it means that in some cases they might find the rug being pulled from under their feet, um, but it also creates opportunities. And the question is, how should companies realize what those opportunities are? That's exactly where the uh, purpose of a company in terms of it being its North Star is so important because it helps to identify what are the areas where it is best placed to really exploit those opportunities going forward and where it should therefore be focusing its activities. And as part of that, the building of the company requires it to identify acquisitions that have, because it's going to often involve shifting from things that they're doing at the moment to doing different things going forward. Uh, so for example, in terms of uh, this type of communication, it means that we are going to uh, need to be able to manage this form of doing business at distance better. Uh, and we may find it useful to acquire certain types of companies that have expertise. For example, in a university, having uh, expertise in terms of how does it present things uh, in this sort of web format? Well, in some cases, that's going to involve acquiring that type of expertise and buying it in. So purpose is going to be a key factor. Strategy, the relationship between purpose and strategy is that purpose over is the overarching element of strategy. Strategy is the relatively short-term, three to five year or so implementation of that longer-term purpose. So it's, re it's very relevant to the implementation, but the driving factor should be the purpose. My thanks to Professor Colin Mayer and Dr. Tim Galpin. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Said Business School at the University of Oxford. Take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about the series, please visit OxfordAnswers.org. Until next time, thanks so much for listening.